What an amazing declaration of faith in the midst of uncertainty. I, I love how the songwriter there says that I will trust, not I, I feel trust or it's easy to trust, but I, I am choosing to trust God in the moments that I don't understand, in the moments that I can't control. So let me pray for us that God would lead us in our time together, that he would open our eyes and our hearts and our wills uh, to his word as we receive it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that you are faithful to us. I thank you that your word and your heart and your character can be counted on. And Lord, there are those of us who walked into this room today with question marks, with uncertainty, with anxiety, with heavy hearts. And God, I pray that you would meet us at our point of need, that you would remind us that you're doing things that we can't see, that in many ways you've answered prayers that we prayed long ago. We just haven't seen the manifestation of that answer yet. So God, I pray that you would wrap our hearts in your perfect peace. I pray, Lord, if there's anything uh, seen or unseen that would prevent us or obstruct us from hearing your voice in your heart, we pray that you would remove it now in the name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. God, you want to give us a gift today, a gift of your truth, of your love and your kindness. Give us hearts to receive it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to say uh, how happy I am to kind of actually be here on the ground in Holland, at least for part of the week. I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between the east and west side of the states until uh, my family moves here in, uh, later this summer. But I was disappointed that I missed Tulip Festival. Like, I know it's like all the rage, and I kind of came here the day after. I was in, uh, it was in the Netherlands in the airport. I did get to see some tulips there. Unfortunately, they were made out of wood. That was the best, that was the best I could get. So next year, I look forward to seeing it in all of its glory. Um, if you need a copy of the scriptures, please raise your hand and our team would be more than happy to give you a Bible. We're going to be spending our time in the Old Testament. I had a professor call it the First Testament. He goes, we don't like things that are old, so he calls it the First Testament. And we're going to spend some time in the book of First Kings and in the beginning of Second Kings. So if you have scripture, you can open that up there. Now, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think it was maybe nine years old and I had gotten into an argument with my mother. And I, it had gotten so fierce, so intense, that I said, you know what, that's it, I can't, I can't live here anymore, I'm running away. And to my great dismay, my mother did not beg and plead and try to stop me. She actually walked me up into our attic and helped me pick out a suitcase that I could put all of my belongings into. Um, she asked me if I thought I was going to get hungry and helped me like kind of pack a lunch so I would be able to survive life on the road. Uh, I picked a bad time to run away in suburban Chicago. It was December, there was snow on the ground. And uh, my mom was smart enough to send my brother, who was seven years older than I, my 16-year-old brother, with me just to make sure that, like, I, I landed safely somewhere as I branched out in my new life as an independent nine-year-old. And I made, it all of three, I made it all of three blocks east. And my brother asked me this very pointed question. He goes, where do you plan on spending the night? Your first night out on the road. And I'm going, oh, I'm going to stay at Eric's house. And he goes, does Eric and his family know that you're coming? I go, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just showing up unannounced. And he goes, well, what if it doesn't work for them to host you tonight? Like, what if they weren't planning on guests? What if they already have people? What, what will you do? And I go, well, I'll just, I'll just sleep here on the corner. And he goes, well, you know that the municipality of Western Springs actually has an ordinance that you're just not allowed to sleep out in public. Um, he goes, the, the police will come and arrest you. Are, are you prepared to go to jail for your convictions? And I was like, no, I hadn't thought this through. And then I walked home. All right. So... Those three blocks represented for me a space between. They were the space between where I came from and where I wanted to go. 
And I believe that every single one of us is either in a transition, we're coming out of a transition, or unbeknownst to us, we're headed into a transition. Sometimes I don't know if life is filled with transitions or if life is just one big transition that's sprinkled with seasons of stability. But those of you who are graduating from high school or college, congratulations. Uh, you've, you've, had a, you've had a great run. You've been able to navigate all the different joys and challenges and dreams and heartache of high school and of college. You are in the space between. You're in this unique window between one season and another. It's a season of fond farewells and final preparations. If you're graduating, the beauty of this kind of milestone for you is that at least you knew it was coming. Uh, you've had it circled on your calendar for months, if not years. You've kind of picked out that perfect outfit that you're going to wear under that, under that gown that they make you wear. And you've, you've planned out your hair so that it will survive that little mortarboard cap they, they kind of hand out to you as well. If you're graduating, you, you know your transition is coming. Others of us, we have been ambushed by transitions that we did not expect. You've had an unexpected change in your work. You're entering into a transition in your relationship. Or maybe you've had a, a radical downshift or upshift in your housing or your finances. I, I don't know. But my guess is that most of us are experiencing a transition or anticipating a transition of some kind. And the question that Pastor Craig and Brad Gray, when he comes back to visit, and I are going to try to answer over these next 10 weeks is this. What do I do in the middle? How do I conduct myself in the in-between season? How do I crack myself open to God's heart and to God's leading so I can discover what it is that he wants to do in me and through me and around me in the in-between space? So this morning, we're going to look at the space between the mundane and the miracle. And we're going to start by looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. This story begins with an account from the life of Elijah, who was kind of the reigning prophet in ancient Israel. Jesus talks about the Bible that he read, and he would talk about the law and the prophets. And kind of the face of the law was Moses, and kind of the face of the prophets, the most famous prophet in kind of Jewish lore, would have been Elijah. Now, Elijah has just completed a major miracle moment. This would have been the pinnacle of a prophet's career. He was able to preach a message that God answered with fire and turned an entire nation to a point of repentance. If you're a prophet, that's the goal. That's the win. But unfortunately, uh, the evil king and the wicked queen, Ahab and Jezebel, revolted against him, and they were chasing him down so that they could kill him. So he goes from this pinnacle moment to a time of hiding and desperation and despair. Sometimes you'll hear uh, commentators talk about the morning after syndrome for athletes. Like you'll work your whole life to win the national championship or the gold medal, and you do, and then the next day you have got this kind of hollow feeling in your gut because you're not supposed, you're not sure what you're supposed to do anymore. You're not sure what, how today is supposed to unfold because you've already hit it all. This is where Elijah is. And in this moment of feeling overwhelmed, God speaks to him. This is what he says in 1 Kings 19, 15 to 18. The Lord said to him, Elijah... Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. Elisha will put together any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, who's kind of the, the competing god or idol in that season, and whose mouths have not yet kissed him. So what God is saying to Elijah is, I have brought you safely through this season. I've completed all of the major work through you that I have needed to complete. Now it's time for you to hand the baton to somebody else. God is moving Elijah from a season of victory to a season of legacy. 
And so in that spirit, he completes the next part of that process. He's getting ready to hand the baton to his successor. Now, I've learned in my life, sometimes God will call us in a crisis. Sometimes God gets our attention because the wheels are falling off. Something, something negative has happened to us. There's been a trauma or a job change or an illness. But oftentimes, have you ever noticed that God speaks to you when life is going just fine? God ambushes you when you've got your whole kind of next five-year plan nailed down. You've got it in a PowerPoint. You've got it on a document that you laminated. It looks great. All you need is for God to rubber stamp it. You, you, you don't want him to put his fingers in it. You're like, Lord, I have this thing. Please stay out of my way. I think it was Woody Allen who said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And, that, and, and many of us, we have our plans, and God, God interrupts. That's exactly what happens to the next character that's introduced here in the text, a guy by the name of Elisha. This is one of my favorite portions in all of Scripture. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. So he's got 12 teams, 24 oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Now imagine that you are Elisha working on the family farm, your plan is laid out for you. Your father owned the land, you learned how to till and work the land, and then one day you're going to either sell that land or you're going to give it off to somebody else. Your, your career plan is already marked out. It is crystal clear. And all you have to do is you plant, you, you plow the land, you plant the seed, and you harvest it. You plant, you plow, you harvest year after year after year. And if things go well, then maybe you add another team of oxen or you hire some additional staff and your plan isn't necessarily easy, but it's predictable. There aren't going to be any surprises. You're going to run this farm until you die. And it's in the midst of that that you're just plowing your field, mind your own business, and Elijah, a national hero, shows up on your front yard and without any words of introduction, throws his coat on you. That's weird, right? That's just a weird moment. Like if somebody that you've kind of dreamed about meeting your whole life just kind of throws a coat on you and runs away, that's what happens in this moment. We don't have any sign that there are any words exchanged to them. Elijah, in pure prophetic, dramatic fashion, throws a cloak on him and walks away. Now, Elisha knows what that means. Because in that culture, if you were to take, you, you've heard us use the experience, we have the expression in our culture, passing the mantle. Well, the mantle would have, been a, would have been a version of a cloak. So if you take your cloak and you put it on a younger person, basically what you're saying is, my intention is for you to take my place. I want you to come with me. I want you to walk in my footsteps. I'm going to teach you everything that I know about this business or about this vocation or in this case about this ministry. And I'm going I'm to hand it over to you when the time is right. So can you imagine... Being Elisha, standing in that moment and just being stunned at the weight of what that symbol meant. He's standing there stunned with this cloak on his shoulders and then he's looking between his plow and the prophet. Between the prophet and the plow. Between the comfort and the call. Between the miracle and the mundane. And he's got to make a choice. He's got to make it now. Why? Because Elijah is walking away. And it, what does it say? The text says that Elisha ran after him. 
He knew in an instant that God was opening a door for a new kind of life, a new kind of adventure. And in a moment, he makes a commitment. And notice what he does. He doesn't just say, hey, Elijah, this sounds great. I'm in. I want to follow you. He goes, let me go back and say goodbye to my father and mother. So some of you who are graduating, you're saying goodbye to father and mother. Uh, but you're, you're going to be back when you need laundry done, right? Or, you know, you're, you're going to be back for Thanksgiving break. You, you've got it, got it, got it planned. Why, why does Elisha ask Elijah for permission to kiss his parents goodbye? Because Elisha knows exactly what he's signing up for, and he knows that there's a very decent chance that he will never see his parents again. He's watched Elijah spend the last three years of his life on the run because the rulers are trying to kill him for the message that he's given. The life that he's signing up for is not one that is filled with glory and security. It is a dangerous and risky proposition. And then, just so that everybody who's watching is crystal clear about how high the stakes are and how committed he is into this new life, what does he do? It says that he takes his oxen and he slaughters them. And then he takes the plow and he burns the oxen on the plow. He invites the whole neighborhood over for his, like, going away barbecue. And everybody gets ribs. But if you're his parents, what are you thinking? Like, if I'm Elisha's dad, I'm like, hey, son... I'm really glad that you have a chance to intern for a major prophetic firm. Uh, let's think this through, all right? Uh, why, don't we, why don't we take the oxen? Why don't we lease them out to the neighbors? How about we take that plow, we'll shrink wrap it, we'll put it in the pole barn, and if this whole little experiment of yours doesn't work out, you can always come back home because let's not get you crazy. Let's not, let's not jump without a parachute. Let's make sure that as you charge and follow your ministry dream, you've got a plan B. Because to operate without a plan B, that's just, that's just reckless and irresponsible, right? What does Elisha do? Elisha burns the plow and he slaughters the oxen and everybody in his town knows what that there's no going back there's no going back and sometimes in a season of transition sometimes the space between is a gift from God for us to evaluate the call and and decide not decide with our brain but decide with our hearts and say I'm all in You'll notice that Elisha didn't kind of get together a group of friends and talk about it. And he didn't like do a poll on Facebook or Instagram to ask people what he should do. He just said, I know this is God. And whatever it is that he wants for my future, that's what I want. We're going to be doing baptisms here at Central on August the 20th, the evening of August the 20th. Baptism is what? Baptism is a burn the plow moment. It says, I am all in with the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not turning around. I'm not retreating. I'm not going back. And the reason that we do baptism publicly is to make a bold statement. To say, whatever it is that Jesus wants for my future, that's that's what I want. So if you've never been publicly baptized, circle that date on your calendar. You're going to be hearing more in the upcoming weeks. So Elisha starts his space between journey with a commitment. To say, God, wherever it is that you're going, I'm going. And then the last verse there, it says that when he left, he became Elijah's servant. He became his servant. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a major international, like kind of a global ministry figure say that I was going to be his successor, I would want to leap straight from the backstage into the spotlight. I'd be like, let's, let's get this going. Let's go. But it doesn't say that. It says that he spent a season. We're not sure how long it was. We don't know if his space between was weeks or months. 
But what did he learn during that time? He learned how to be a servant. Learn how to be a servant. Now, a servant is not... It's not something that we glamorize here in our culture. In fact, we try to teach people, you know what? Hey, you have your first job. You're going to be a server. You're going to be a support staff. But if you do well, you'll graduate beyond that because the goal of life is to get from being a servant to being one who is served. That, that's the goal, right? That's where we want to get, where we don't have to serve people anymore, but where people have to serve us. It's a great American movie that came out many years ago when I was a kid, Karate Kid, and then they had to make it again with, uh, you know, Jaden Smith because they had to enter, because filmmakers are getting lazy and they're just remaking everything uh, 30 years old these days, right? But if you remember the movie, you know that in both, in both versions, the kid, an aspiring karate master, gets stuck with these really mundane drills. You know, you got to wax the car, you got to sweep the floor, and at the end of the day, we realize in hindsight, when the film reaches its climax, that what the master was teaching was not karate skills, he was teaching the character and the discipline of a fighter. And we don't like to do the character lessons. We want to say, teach me the secret moves. Teach me the magic tricks. Teach me the fast track to the top. Don't teach me the character work that's required to be the kind of person who can serve at the highest level. NFL season is right around the corner. Draft just happened. And usually during training camp, you'll hear stories about how veteran players pick on a rookie and they make him kind of carry all of their shoulder pads or they'll make him take the entire offensive line out for a steak dinner that ends up having a tab of like $12,000. And the veterans like to pick on the rookies. Why? Because they like to remind them that they're not the top dog anymore. That in college, they might have been the elite athlete that everybody was starstruck when they were around. But when you get to the next level, you have to start at the bottom again. And so they try to teach them, what does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to be a servant? And in the space between, Elisha starts with making a commitment, but then he goes into the school of character. And I'm convinced more and more that many of us in times of transition, the big question that we have for God is, God, what do you want me to do? What school do you want me to go to? What house do you want me to buy? What person do you want me to date or marry? What choice do you want me to make? What action do you want me to take? And I think that more often than not, God has a different question. And God's question for us is, what kind of person do you want to be? And I'm learning more and more that God might care less and less about where we take our classes than the kind of person we are when we show up at that school. And Elijah is in the school of character. He is learning what it means to serve. When I graduated from Taylor University in central Indiana, they gave us two things. They gave us a diploma, and they gave us a towel. It was a little nice, thin, cheap, white towel that had the university logo imprinted on it. Why? Because they wanted to remind us that the nature of Christ-like service was to put a towel over our arm and serve people around us. Ironically, a lot of people ended up framing their towel next to their diploma, which I think is an exercise in missing the point. <laughs> Towels are supposed to get dirty. Not supposed to, not supposed to put them in museums. But I had an opportunity uh, to go to Nepal about a month, just a few weeks ago. And while we were there, we met an amazing Nepali leader, a guy by the name of Ramesh. And he's leading a, leading a ministry that sees girls rescued out of, out of human trafficking. And while we were doing a training for some of their leaders, I just I got a little sideways. I got in a little bit of a funk. And part of me was saying, like, God, I know this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for, for me to be here. I'm really grateful to be um, witnessing firsthand some amazing things that you're doing on the other side of the world. But quite frankly, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what my role is. I feel a little bit lost. And I'm not the kind of person who gets audible voices or visitations from angels, but I, I had this whisper, I had this prompting where I just felt like God was saying to me, all I need you to do is serve. I just, I just need you to wash feet. 
I was like, okay, I can do that. So the next day, Ramesh, the ministry leader, says, okay, we're going we're gonna to wind up this whole program tomorrow. And he goes, and we're going to end it with a foot washing. And I went, oh, no, like the Lord was literal. Like he like, meant actually to wash feet. It wasn't a metaphor. And so one of the things you can see him here, that's, this is, um, that's Ramesh's back. He's on the ground. He's got that green towel over his shoulder. And he's washing the feet of the pastors that he serves. And so the, the, the highest ranking person in the room got on his knees to serve the people who looked up to him and respected him. And if you've, if you've ever had a moment like this, you know that it can be immediately emotional. And the pastor was overwhelmed. And some of the young women who were in the room who had never, never seen a man in an authority position treat another person with physical touch in a way that r- reflected respect or honor or kindness just, just began to weep. And one of the staff workers, because there were so many people who needed to be served and honored in this moment, one of the staff workers just kind of shoved a bucket in my hand and gave me a towel. And I go, oh, I guess this is happening now. It wasn't necessarily something I signed up for. It wasn't something I was anticipating. But at the end of the time, I felt like God was saying, Steve, I want, I want you to learn that the heart of leadership is service. And if you can't be faithful in the little things, then you will be woefully unprepared for the big things. So maybe in our space between, God is asking us to make a God-sized commitment, but God is also asking us to enter into the school of character. And I was just talking with a new friend, a woman, after the first service, and she said, sometimes when you're a time of transition, you don't get to do all of the things that you used to be good at. And when you have this time of quiet, you have to look in the mirror and realize that there are some hurts and habits and hang-ups in your core that God wants, to, God wants to work on. Now, I don't know about you. I would much rather undertake a new project than actually look into the abyss of the darkness of my own soul and do character work. Like, I just, just give me another thing. Give me another task. I'll do that. But when I just have to say, all right, Lord, where do you want to root out pride and anger? Where do you want to deal with resentment and temptation? Where, where do you want to address issues of lust or ingratitude or unkindness in my life? Those are hard questions to ask. You know why? Because God always has answers for those questions. And some of us in this space between, God is saying, I don't want you to do anything new. I want you to drill down into the core. I want you to start moving some of the rocks out of the hardened soil of your heart and soul so that I can weed it out. I can till it, we can water it, and make it ripe and fertile to receive a new word and a new work. In the space between, Elisha makes a commitment to trust God for a new adventure. And then he does the character work to learn how to be a servant. And then finally, he takes a leap of courage. He steps out in courage. So he moves from commitment to character to courage. This is what we read in 2 Kings chapter 2. And we honestly don't know how much time transpired between that initial plow-burning declaration to this episode right here. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. What is he, model- what is he modeling? He's modeling the heart of a servant. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. That's Hebrew for, please shut up. (laughs) 
Then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I won't, I won't leave you. So they went to Jericho. A different company of prophets, the prophets in a different town in Jericho, they went up to Elijah and asked him, do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. He replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Heart of the servant. Unbridled faithfulness. So the two of them walked on. Now 50 men from the company of prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan River. Elijah took his cloak, that famous cloak, the cloak from the scene we just talked about, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Let's stop there for a moment. There are only three moments that I can recall in Scripture where God kind of parts a body of water up until this point. It's when God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites, and when he parted this same body of water, the Jordan, for the Israelites again, when they were standing at the water's edge, coming into the promised land. Here, God parts the water, not for an entire nation, not for hundreds of thousands of people, but just for two just for Elijah and Elijah, it seems kind of like a waste of a miracle, doesn't it? Like you could say like, hey, can't you guys walk down to the next bridge or kind of swim across? There's no need to get all dramatic with this. Why does God part the waters? Because he needs everybody who is watching to know that his hand is resting on Elijah. That Elijah is still his man. That he is still the reigning, leading prophet. He's still the voice of God in Israel at this moment. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Because this is the end of the run. If you have any last requests of me, make it now. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father! The chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took his garment and tore it in two. In the ancient years, to tear your garment is a symbol of shock and despair and great grief. The man that he has walked with for a season, who's taught him everything that he needs to know about the character of God and the life and nature of ministry, is gone in an instant. And what I love about this passage is it reminds us that Elijah is staking Taking, Elisha is taking steps of courage. He's, had, he's taking the courage to say goodbye. You'll notice what? That he's had three different opportunities to walk away from this moment. Elisha says, hey, if you don't want to come, you can stay home. He goes, no, I'm coming with you. And then he goes go to the next town. If you don't want to stay, you can go. No, I'm coming with you. Elisha knows what's going to happen. He knows that at the end of this day, the man that he loves is going to be gone. But he keeps stepping towards that moment. He doesn't run from it. He leans into it. He pursues it. And he says, today is the day where I'm going to have to stay good, say goodbye. Now, some of us know that God is leading us into a farewell season. Maybe you've been in a dating relationship that has become clear over the last couple of weeks and months that it's, it's toxic. That God's hand isn't in it. That this person isn't going to take you to a place that God wants you to be. And it's time for you to say goodbye. Or it could be that there's somebody that you, that you care about deeply. Who's suffering from an illness that looks like is going to mark the end of the run. 
And you're having to decide if you're going to walk with them through that. And I, I have friends who are nice people who love Jesus who will just, they'll tap out. They'll say, this is, it's too intense. I can't do it. It's easier for me to walk away from this relationship than to, to walk to the very bitter end as I watch somebody's body unravel. I can't do it. It's too overwhelming. Some of you, God is moving you. you maybe you, college, you high school and college graduates, God is moving you to a new city or to a new town. Some of you are being offered a job change or a ministry opportunity, and you're having to decide whether you want to walk away from your dream house and your circle of friends and the environment that you have come to know and love. That was kind of the season that Kelly and I were in a few months ago as we were praying about whether or not to come to Central. I've been in Detroit for 22 years. There was like a nice little environment that was set up there, but I felt like God was saying, you can choose, you have to choose. You have to choose between the comfort and the call. You have to choose between the mundane and the miracle. What's it, what's it going to be? It's going to, it's going to involve you saying goodbye. Do you have the courage to do it? So there's some of us where God is actually leading us up to a point where he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need you to say farewell. And that requires courage on the part of us, required courage on the part of Elijah. Here's another moment of courage. He prays a bold prayer. Elisha says, you get one wish. What is it? And, uh, and Elisha says, I want twice the amount of God's anointing and favor on your life that you had. That's, that's reckless. And we're not exactly sure even what the motives behind that prayer are, but he prays it. And you know what I realized in, in reading that passage again? I realized that I would say the overwhelming majority of my prayers are way too small. Like, can I, can I make an honest confession to you? The overwhelming majority of the prayers that I pray are only for me and the people who live under my roof. That's it. That more often than not, my dreams for what I want God to do in the world are limited to the people that are in my immediate circle. And then we have to ask this question, how big is God exactly? How vast is his heart for what is happening on the planet that we dwell on at this unique moment in history? And if the prayers that I'm praying are only for me and mine, I'm missing out on an opportunity to pray God's dreams for a church, for a city, for a nation, for, yes, a world. Is it possible that in the time between, God wants to stretch our vision for who he is and what he's capable of? And God wants to convict us of two small prayers. God is... God is expanding. Elisha is a man of courage. He gives him the courage to say goodbye. He gives him the courage to pray bold prayers. And then finally, he gives him the courage to take a tangible step of faith. To take a tangible step of faith. And I don't know about you, but it's very easy for us to say, I believe. And then when you actually have to have the rubber hit the road on a decision that you have to trust God for, that's a different ballgame, is it not? When I was in college... We had, I had a professor who was teaching us a class on youth ministry. And he said, the law of the conservation of energy says this. And he had suspended like an eight-pound bowling ball on a fishing line from the ceiling of the classroom. Because the law of conservation of energy says this. He goes, if you sit in this chair that's against the concrete wall by the blackboard, and I take this bowling ball and I pull it up to your nose. He goes, if I release it like a pendulum swing, physics says that it won't come any farther than the point that I released it from. So if I, if I put it up to your nose and I let it go, it'll come back to your nose, but it won't bash your head into the concrete. He goes, that's what physics says. He goes, do you believe in physics? We say, yes, we love physics. He goes, who wants to sit in the chair? <laughs> and like a reckless people-pleasing person, kind of like the wannabe star student, I'm like, I will. 
And so I sit in the chair and he pulls the bowling ball up to my nose. And as it's going away, all I can think is science is real, science is real, science is real. <laughs> and you know what? When it came back, you know what I did? I flinched because in my gut, I didn't believe that it wasn't going to hit me in the face. And Elijah has a moment where he has to sit in the chair. He's got this moment where he has to sit in the chair. And this is what we're going to read now in this next passage, verse 13. Elisha, after Elijah gets taken up to heaven, Elisha picks up the cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. And he said this, Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. And when he had struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. And the company of prophets from Jericho were watching. They said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed down on the ground before him. Now let me ask you this question. Why was it a risky move for Elijah to take that cloak and hit the water with it? Like how many times has Elijah split the Jordan River with a piece of fabric before? Zero. And he's trying something very brave. Why? Because 50 of his friends and colleagues are watching on the other side. This is not just like he in the privacy of the wilderness trying to experiment with God. No, this is, again, a public declaration. The story starts with a public declaration. He burns the plow. It's, it's turning again on a public declaration. He's going to hit the water. And when he hits the water, he asks this question, and I love it. He says, where now is the Lord? And he doesn't say, where now is the Lord my God? He says, where now is the Lord the God of that guy? Where's Elijah's God? Because if he could show up now, that would be great. Because I know that Elijah's God can do this stuff. I saw it happen an hour ago. My God, I'm not so sure. And for those of you who are graduating, there is going to come a crunch time when you're away from home where you're going to have to decide for the first time whether your faith is yours or whether it was your parents. Whether it was yours or whether it was somebody else's. And maybe you've gone through a season where you say, I know God is good. I have seen God be good to this person and this person and this person. And there's going to come a time in the next season where you're going to have to ask this question, is God real to me? And God's going to give you a moment, I guarantee you, in the next four months, where you're going to have to sit in the chair or decide if you want to sit in the chair. Say, do I believe that God is who he says he is? That God can and will do the things that he said he will do. And Elisha has this moment of brazen courage when he says, I believe that God can do this. At the beginning of the story, he received Elisha's cloak, but at the end of the story, he received Elisha's anointing. And there is a space between the symbol of God's promise, and the realization of God's promise. He made a commitment. He ran after God's dream for his life. He did the character work. He passed on the temptation to be a star, and he decided to strive to serve, and he had the courage to say goodbye, to ask for more, to walk in faith. Our culture keeps telling us that the goal of this life, the goal of our work, and the goal of our spirituality is to get to a place where we can be comfort, Comfortable, secure, and convenient. How do we know that we've won in this life? When we are insulated from risk and fear on every side, right? The problem is there's not a verse that tells us that that's the case. We have all sorts of verses that say God is constantly moving. God is constantly stretching. God is constantly calling. And if you want to be about the things of God and you want to be about the move of God, I can guarantee you that he will constantly be nudging you out of the comfortable places, the forts and the nests and the houses that we've built around us to insulate us from a dark and scary world outside. 
But God's not afraid of a dark and scary world. God is taking a dark and scary world by storm. And God wants to know if we will join him, if we will fall in behind the wake of a God who is reclaiming darkness with light every single day. There's two ways to look at your life journey. One is to say, I'm going on a straight path and there are milestones. There are milestones because I'm walking a straight line. A milestone lets me know how far they've come. And in many ways, graduation is a milestone. It says, congratulations, you made it this far. But I believe that our life isn't marked by milestones. Our life is marked by our crossroads because our crossroads require decisions. Our crossroads require obedience. And just like uh, Hannah and Melinda and Nate were singing for us just a few moments ago, that life is about trust. God, I trust you. I trust you. I cannot see what's around the corner. And quite frankly, it terrifies me because I'm not in control. But God says, I want you, I want you to take a leap. I want you to take a step of courage. And there's some of you where signing up for baptism is going to be your moment. Some of you um, coming to celebrate recovery, this amazing ministry that we have that helps us navigate our hurts and habits and hang-ups. That's, that's going to be your act of courage. That's going to be you hitting the water saying, I've heard that God has delivered and rescued and redeemed other people out of their personal darkness. I, I want to see if it can be true for me as well. But God has us in a season for a reason. And I believe it's to shape and to mold us so that we look more like Jesus than we did before. And so um, I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, the team's going to come out and lead us in the song that many of you know that talk about God leading me out into uncertain waters, but me being able to step with confidence because Jesus is not, Jesus isn't ignorant about what's in the future for us. And he says, if you seek me in my kingdom first, all, the stuff that you all that stuff that stresses you out, it's going to fall on the line. Will you trust me? Will you fall in behind me? Will you run to join me in my movement for your life and for this town and for the world? Let's pray together. Father God, every single one of us is precious to you. And you have hopes and dreams and plans for every individual, for every family, and yes, even this church. But God, it requires us to be delivered, to be shot out, to be catapulted out of our small thinking for ourselves and for your kingdom and for your heart. So God, I pray that you would give us the vision of Elijah that says that there is a God who can do more than I've given him credit for. There's a God who wants to give me more than I've asked for. There's a God who wants to give me the grace to let go of the things that aren't serving me as I seek to trust you any longer. So God, give us the boldness to commit Give us the wisdom to do character work with you and by your grace. And give us the tenacity to commit to courage. Because you have started a work in us and you're going to be faithful to complete it. All you require is our faith, our obedience, our surrender, and our cooperation. And we don't do that out of guilt. We don't do that out of fear. We do it out of the sheer joy of bending our will to yours the God who loves us more than we know. Meet us in this moment and give us the grace that we need to take the one step that you've identified before us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.